0: Maura Sambolani, hello, how's it? Welcome to another Tuesday and another episode of the IRR Show with, of course, Sarah Gunn and me, your favorite fat boy, Big Daddy Liberty. Good morning, Sarah. How are you doing?
1: Hi, Steve. Um I think I said it last week, but it's still weird. That? Just being here. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's my whole life sorry. revolving around my kitchen and my dining room.
0: That that weird feeling of like, hey, I've seen that wall before. Um, But yeah, it's 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 um, life in uh, as I I, I now call it on social media, lockdownistan, and we're all (laughs) subjects of it. So, good morning to you, fellow subjects of the wonderful lockdownistan. I hope you're enjoying. Day 20, is it 26 now of this? And um, speaking about uh, enjoying something, today's show is going to be a bit of a wonderful one as we have a, a very interesting character, um and a, someone who I think has defined political analysis in this country. And um, uh, I'm talking, of course, about R.W. Johnson. So he'll be joining us at uh, for our major feature at 9.20. Um, good morning to you, by the way, if you're just joining us. You're listening to the IRR Show. And as always on the IRR Show, we begin by looking at the the Newsweek that was, you know, what happened? What piqued your interest? What had the world talking? Uh, you know, if you if you live in the world of social media, what's been going on there? For example, what's been trending? Um, Sarah, before we go to our first break, uh, uh, perhaps l- let me begin with the, the the weirdest one, I suppose, that happened last night. And I, I didn't speak to you about this one, but it, it actually just crossed my mind. The, the oil price that just mm. absolutely collapsed. Um, of course, the one version of oil, the WTI um, mm. that's traded, was trading in negative territory. Mm. They were actually paying us to take the oil. Well,
1: the 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 plus and the negative is this. Obviously, um, given the fact that there's virtually, there's no economic growth at the moment, people aren't doing anything, the little one is spending on oil is is little uh, in in usual terms. Obviously the problem is that the, the oil industry, if it's cannot find people to buy its oil or to pay them to take the oil and put in storage. Um, Once you shut down, if you have to shut down a well, you can't open it up again. Um, And also, of course, it's it's jobs lost in that industry. And I
0: was about to say, it's been interesting to watch, sort of, um, again, maybe just for clarity's sake, the WTI is one version of oil um, that's traded on the international market. It makes about one third, I think, because mm-hmm. I remember the economists, uh, sort of breaking it down for me last night. Um, Brent crude is the two thirds one. That's one we also buy. So, mm. so that one's still yeah. trending at around $20 or so per barrel. So it's just the one that kind of collapsed in a, way, a weird way. But again, as Sarah mentioned, it, it's the idea of just there's no demand. No one is buying the oil. And of course, we can segue back to the coronavirus as to being perhaps one of the biggest causes as to why, which is shut down economies around the world. So there's clearly a massive economic um, and, uh, well, I should say financial impact uh, to this. Everybody is hurting. Mm-hmm. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out and what the spin-offs will be in the rest of the stock market. In fact, if I can yeah. quickly do this, Sarah, um, mm-hmm. this Wednesday on the Big Daddy Liberty Show, and we can find that on all my social media, I'm going to be in conversation with two economists, or one economist, sorry, an, an analyst, on the economic fallout of the coronavirus around the world. But back to our show, Sarah. Um maybe as we head to our first break, if I'm watching the time right, after that we're we'll gonna be looking at other some of uh you know big issues that made the news headlines in the week, will we not?
1: We will indeed. And if you want uh if you want a hot meal, um you can't have one. <laughs> um
0: yeah, that one that one had a lot of people riled up. Um let me just double check if we are going to a night break. I'm not really seeing any messages, but uh, if we're yeah. not um yeah, I mean, I mean, that one really had people riled up for, for, for the right reason. And perhaps one has to set it up for, for the listeners. You have a situation where, uh, obviously we were into shutdown and for most of Africans, um, okay, so actually we actually are going to go to a break. So, uh, let's pick it up after the break where we look at the hot meal saga. like, Is it now illegal to buy
2: hot food? Hi FM,
0: your station of choice since 2008.
1: Um, Cynthia, I suggest we go straight to Bill, and we can always pick up if if there's time at, at a later stage.
0: Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, okay. And uh, maybe for the benefit of our listeners, let me welcome our guest, Mr. R.W. Johnson, uh, better known as Bill. Bill, welcome to the show. We, um, we, uh, I think we, 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 we're at a very interesting point, um, in our country's history where the political economy and really the politics that, that informs, um, Every moment of South African life up until this this very crisis, if you will, is now coming to a bit of a head, isn't it? Um, and, And let me maybe structure this question a little better. Bill. I've been saying on social media for, for quite a while now that the COVID-19 crisis and this lockdown is but a mere symptom, if you will, of what has been the 26 years pre- preceding it of a absolute shambolic state of our political affairs in this country and the erosion of key institutions that protect um, South Africans. And we're now seeing it, I suppose, um, with a spotlight being shown on it um, by this 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 period if you will, of the virus. <coughs> Am I wrong in this assessment? Or is everything rosy?
2: No, that's, I would roughly agree with that assessment, yeah.
0: Okay. <laughs> and very short response. I was hoping you'd, you'd, you'd hash that out for me, but um, perhaps we Well, we, I mean, we, I, I didn't
2: know. Have we started the interview? I'm not sure what's yes, going on. Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry, no. I didn't sorry. I didn't <laughs> yes,
0: realize. Yes, we're live on the April. Um, welcome to the show. Um, we are live on air. Um, no, sorry, but again, that's real life. That's okay. That's okay. Um, uh, maybe just to sort of cut, circle back. Um we yeah, uh, We have this we have this phenomenon, uh, I suppose, right now, where there is a resurgence, if you will, by by some pockets of you know, South African of political life, of this idea that oh, you know. Um, thank God for the Ramaphoria, or or President Ramaphosa, excuse me, um, because if it wasn't for him, everything would fall um, to absolute pieces and we sort of forget that we've had 26 years of this and, you know, it's am I wrong in in characterizing what's happening right now as mostly being PR and people forgetting what it actually really means to have been under 26 years of ANC rule?
2: No, I I think that is correct and I think that uh you know, the situation we face at the moment is, I mean, first of all, institutionally, the fact that the state says, you know, we're going to distribute food parcels, but it hands them over to ANC councillors who in turn play all the usual games with corruption and hoarding and selling them and, you know, this sort of thing. What else do you expect if you hand them over to ANC councillors? And why is the state handing these things over to, a political parties, uh, people. I mean, th- this is just fantastic, really. And it was very predictable that this would happen if, um, because this is the way the ANC behaves and we know what follows from it. But it's perhaps more striking in the sense that the financial situation, which uh, is the context for this is the product of 26 years of uh, ANC rule. And, of course, we're in a parlous situation. And I find it really quite ironic at the moment because all the usual people on the left and in civil society are campaigning for massive Keynesian uh, public spending, particularly, mm-hmm. of course, uh, this idea of a, of a basic income grant but also uh, large increases to the uh, child allowance and so on. Now, this is all very nice, but I do hope that at least some of them understand that this would cost round about $900 billion. Now, if you're going to do this, the only possible way of funding it would be through extra borrowing. We're currently paying around 10% on uh, our borrowing, so that's another $90 billion a year in interest payments. Now, given that the budget deficit, which was predicted to be 6.8, could now be anything up to 15, um, put those two things together, and the, the net result is that what you are voting for, if you want a basic income grant, is an IMF bailout. Uh, because it, the state will find itself completely unable to fund these things. And, uh, I mean, it's all very nice just to say we must find the money but finding the money means going into unpayable debt. The fact that the land bank has just defaulted yesterday is a very clear sign of dominoes beginning to fall. And I think that the, the problem is there are very few economic literates uh, in the ANC. And indeed, economic literacy is not widespread in our society. And I don't think people realize quite how dramatic. The situation is in terms of these choices at the moment, and we 're very, very close to to the whole i 'm sure and understands. understand mm. but, and I imagine that the, the the reserve bank people do as well and I hope and assume that they 're telling Ramaphosa and that he at least partially understands but uh, mm, sorry
1: no uh, so along those lines of, of uh, economic illiteracy um, it it 's seen. Uh, in a, in a horrible way, in the, in the smaller, in what I call the smaller sector, smaller in the sense of small business, not, uh, not big business, in the responses to whether you, to at what point you can or cannot buy a hot meal, um, that the that BEE that, uh, 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 be, uh, criteria from charters will be applied in the tourism industry. It's, it's, it's got a sense of the, the, the bizarre and the absurd, but it suggests that we're dealing with people who actually don't really seem to understand how people live.
2: Uh, well, uh, yes, look, it's a, it's a peculiar sort of parochialism, uh, which enables people to make rules like that. I find the whole thing about cigarettes and um, alcohol not being allowed peculiar. And, and mm. the idea that we should be damaging our wine exports at this moment, when we need every single export we can, is fantastic. I, I simply cannot understand the reasoning behind that. But I agree, I mean, there are many different aspects to this lack of economic literacy. Uh, and, but partly, you know, the government is very parochial. It, it, mm. most of the people within the ANC alliance are people who think only within South African terms, who have very little sense of the international context and don't seem to realize, uh, that we are a small economy and we can't really afford to act as if we are a large independent power able to set the agenda because we're not in that
1: situation. Um, are we not, is it, does it not suggest that there's a, a complete lack of coordination under, uh, Lamini Zuma, who's the ultimate minister, um, in charge of the, in charge of the lo- lockdown? Because last week the, the wine industry could Transport wine for the purposes of export, as could mines, could start opening. This week, you can't have wine. You can't transport wine. <laughs> and no exception is made. So the wine industry is forced to go to to court to to open things as, up, as a, as I think the the mining industry as well. Um, it seems like as soon as you go beyond the medical component, which is fairly reasoning reasoned, um, you get you get chaos. Um, and it seems like what we're living with is the management by the same old, same old. And to have someone like uh, Tlamini Zuma there is just extraordinary. Well,
2: there we what we Sorry, Bill.
0: <laughs> it's, it's, can, I, can I just a kind of far from it? We, we need to take a very quick ad break. Uh, but when we come back, we'll pick up on that question and we'll pick up on the conversation. Okay, fine. IFM, 101.9 megahertz of
1: life. Um thanks, we are back, and, uh, right. uh, we were talking about the lack of coordination of the, uh, of the cluster that is looking after the pandemic. Um Certainly I think you wanted to, do, I don't know if you wanted to pick up from there, question from there.
0: Uh, just before I do that, let me quickly pay our bills, you know how it is, okay. we need to just get our sponsors <laughs> out, all well, our sponsors, our advertisers <laughs> out. Um, <laughs> Make a difference during the COVID-19 pandemic with DISCAM. Your DISCAM benefit points can now go towards supporting the independent solidarity fund set up by the president. DISCAM is matching rand for rand, all point donations, and will kickstart it with an upfront 2 million rand. Monies raised will go towards saving lives and assisting people in need. Donate now by converting your points via the DISCAM app. Or website. Together, we are stronger. Together, we can overcome the pandemic. This can Pharmacists do care. Sorry, you were saying?
1: Now, I was just talking about the the uh, other than the health minister, the seeming lack of coordination or imagination of the cluster of ministers that is looking after this pandemic. And I, I'm reminded that uh, the, the the minister in charge, of course, zanu lamini Zuma, was the health minister who essentially banned successfully banned smoking in public places. Is this not really a sign of the inherent um, autocratic nature of uh, of the ANC when, when it has the ability to get a little bit of extra power?
2: Well, you know, uh, I suppose one could take that uh, point of view. Frankly, I'm not terribly interested in what her personal uh, preferences are in this matter. Uh, the point really is that there doesn't seem to be any overall conception of what is really important to the country and what is not. Mm. This is simply not a good time to be trying to impose otherwise quite, uh, you know, respectable notions of trying to cut down on alcoholism and smoking and so on. But, you know, people have to be allowed to choose these things. And if Mm. you deprive them, it's like going back to prohibition in America. If you deprive them of something like that, then all that will happen is that organized crime in one sense or another will step in to fulfill that mm. need and will do very nicely out of it, which is already happening, of course. Mm. But, um, you know, it's just very foolish and anyone who knows anything about that history would never have uh, embarked on this path. But mm. it's what we've got.
0: Uh, absolutely. Well, I actually want to zoom in on this because I think you're opening a, a necessary can of worms in this conversation, which is the idea that Since the beginning of this lockdown, we've seen uh, social partners, uh, you know, civil society, organizations like the media, and of course our politicians essentially expose themselves as having a very poor concept and understanding of of liberty and civil liberties. How, for instance, you can have a media that just clap on um, and almost goad on politicians who are suggesting that, you know, through arbitrary means, um, they should be able to just, you know, impose their will at times, um, even being called out flat out lying. I mean, a good example, just very quickly, is the uh, trade and industry minister, uh, Ibrahim Patel, who last week, Friday, told us that there are regulations against so-called hot food or the preparation and and selling of hot food. And then only to find out that on Sunday, um, you know, Minister Nkosazana Yaminezuma only then uh, sign those into this current law under this uh, state of disaster. Uh, th- there's something very weird about a society that, in a moment like this, no one stumps for freedom, is it not?
2: Well, yes, uh, you know, I suppose that's, that's true, and uh, it's, it's not all that surprising, but look, it's just part of the general confusion and the fact that you know, the ANC has run out of ideas. It finds itself increasingly in a situation which it doesn't know how to cope with. And we get sort of distress signals of every kind. And uh, already, as people begin to glimpse the possibility uh, that this will end up in having to go to the IMF, uh, that that idea produces a complete hysteria. Uh, mm-hmm. And people, I mean, I, I I've noticed there have been articles in the press in which people say that you know, the IMF is itself a, 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 a sort of den of disease and will bring worse diseases to us. And you think, well, what is going on? You know, what do people, how do people believe things like that? But I'm afraid there's just a lot of it about at the moment and I'm not too surprised. And to be quite frank, these ridiculous things about the hot food and the cigarettes and the, the, the booze, um it's not the big picture, you know, and I mean, it's annoying, but, uh, you know, given the other things that are going on, which is large numbers of people more or less starving and a uh, huge loss of jobs and so forth, I mean, these, these are relatively details.
0: Well, one does get the sense, and I wanted to chip in here, that that we're being primed for something here, Bill. Um, You know, there's a a record of history which does point to an ANC which ever increasingly wants to centralise more power, to centralise more authority within the national government. Um, And of course, with that. And with that particular ideology that underpins that, um, we know there are certain policy ideas that are being advanced, things like a national health insurance, for example, the expropriation of land, without compensation, etc. Do you not think that there is, as you know, some political voices have said, you know, um, never, never, um, never, never waste a good crisis. I think is what they say in politics. Um, do you not think we're seeing a political elite in this country sort of um, cajole us in that direction, of saying, "Oh, look at how we dealt with this COVID pandemic. Now you can trust us." For example, with something like the full control of healthcare through the NHI, or am I being a little conspiratorial here?
2: I doubt whether there is any coherent plan of that kind, I'm sure you're right that the tendency, you know, that people will, uh, well, you can already see it, there are demands coming from the SACP that uh, that the sort of forced coordination, and I mean, thank goodness it has happened, of the private and public health <coughs> sectors uh, in this crisis, that you immediately got demands from them saying we must just take over and completely sort of nationalize the private health sector, Uh, of course there will be people who see the opportunities and things like that, but I don't think there's an overall coherent plan at all. I I think that there are just instincts in that situation, but that the government is not sufficiently well organized, not sufficiently intellectually coherent to have such a plan. So I I don't myself feel that we are being prepared for some master plan, which they've got in mind. The problem is rather the opposite, that there isn't a plan. And that's why when Mm -hmm. the cabinet meets Mm -hmm. to produce one, we're then told they've not been able to agree on anything. And we still don't Mm -hmm. really have any perspective on how we're supposed to exit from the lockdown and what the plan ahead is and so on. Um, And I don't think they know.
1: Um, that, uh, Bill, that is my impression. Um, but, and, and one of the things that is starting to appear more and more in articles on the subject is the necessity of, for a plan that does move us out of a, a hard lockdown for all the reasons you've talked about, and particularly the, the, the epa- appalling state of the economy. Um, but since we're having this argument about going to the IMF, um, what you see is the possibility of delving into pension and provident fund um, uh, savings, uh, particularly given the fact that there have been reports of big business and uh, the government t- uh, having talks about them?
2: Well, look, uh, One, the idea that the government could um, take over the PIC and use that money or mm-hmm. the UIF fund, uh, those are both plausible. Uh, first of all, the government guarantees the public service pensions anyway, so there doesn't really need to be a separate fund uh, to provide for that. If you take France or Britain or m- many other countries, uh, there's no such separate fund. The government simply guarantees the, the pensions and has to stand by that guarantee. The problem here, of course, is that the government has given guarantees on various things and they not been able to honour them. So mm-hmm. I suppose they, the civil servants feel safer with a separate fund. But nonetheless, the government could mobilise those funds. The problem is, by the way, the PIC owns far greater share of the stock market than any other single organization. If you want to uh, extract large amounts of cash from it, then you would have to uh, sell enormous amounts of shares. And uh, the market is down. You would get a bad price. And you would, of course, further depress prices because you would be tipping almost unsellable amounts of uh, equities onto the market so there are problems there but nonetheless that, that you could do but beyond that you would need a lot more than that you see mm. and uh, there are gay suggestions that private pension funds should also be somehow pulled into the game I don't see how legally you po- can possibly do that no one has the mm. right to take over a private pension fund which somebody has set up and has been contributing to over many years. It's simply theft, if you take that. Mm. So, mm. Uh, I can imagine that you might try to legislate prescribed assets, mm-hmm. but the problem is, and Michael Sachs made this point quite clearly last week when he was called in, and I think he knows what he's talking about, that even mm. if you do all of those things, you will, as he delicately put it, still have to mobilize considerable international resources now, what that means is going to whoever, the British mm-hmm. Bank, IMF, World Bank, and uh, asking for large amounts of money. So, you know, that is uh, looming as, as uh, a possibility, whatever else happens.
1: So, uh, essentially, what we're probably seeing is the one side of the ANC trying unsuccessfully to persuade the other side of the ANC that uh, the IMF is not the devil incarnate. It is a lending institution that lends with conditions <laughs> like most lending institutions. Um, I, I don't know, is there any way of getting, at all possible possible way of getting past this ideological, well, it's not so much divide, but perhaps for some people some uh, common sense has prevailed, but with most others probably not.
2: Well... First of all, let, let's, uh, you know, the IMF is talking about some relief program for uh, emerging markets uh, such as this, uh, which is related to COVID-19. Now, uh, Mbawaini has quite rightly said, of course, we would be interested in anything that comes available from that. But that would be, uh, you know, useful amount of money, no doubt, <coughs> and it would be relatively unconditional. Uh, but that would only go so far, and there are something like 90 to 100 countries wanting such relief, so there wouldn't be an awful lot to go around. The larger question is the question of a proper bailout, where you have to apply for a large loan. Uh, now, in that case, of course, conditionalities do apply. Now, at the moment, I see the ANC's Economic Transformation Committee yesterday said that they were all in favour of the government getting anything they could out of the IMF and the World Bank, uh, provided that uh, South Africa's sovereignty was respected, i.e. no conditions. Uh, Now, that's all very well if you want relatively small-scale help to do with Mm -hmm. COVID-19, but if, as I suspect increasingly, they're going to need a large-scale bailout, then there's no uh, avoiding conditionalities.
0: Mm -hmm. Bill, and I must pose this to you because I think um, the average South African who was maybe reading into the news cycle would have thought, uh, whether right or wrong, that hey, maybe there is a glimmer of hope. Uh, maybe we are heading towards some uh, form of reform. And I'll use um, government stance on SAA. As an example, that had a lot of people sort of rather excited, um, which I know sounds very lugubrious because, you know, people are losing jobs and the like. But obviously, we we as a a country are very aware of the fact that we've been propping up SOEs, for example, um, to the expense of spending in other areas, which perhaps would have been much more fruitful. Perhaps those individuals will then look to that and go, well, you know maybe this government would take an IMF loan and would accept um, some of the, you know, sort of con- uh, conditions, structural adjustment type conditions. Um, are, are those people being woefully optimistic or is there a glimmer of something in that direction?
2: Well, I, no, I think it's a developing situation. But look, first of all, we haven't yet had quite definitely the end of the SAA and uh, South African Express story. Mm. We are assuming that, I mean, Praveen is, Gordon is meeting with them this morning and so forth. But, you know, we haven't actually heard a government minister stand up and say, you know, we are now going to liquidate mm-hmm. this airline or, or whatever. And, you know, we've got to hear that before we assure that they've really gone that, the whole hog on that. But because um, I, I know that there are still very strong pressures from Kassatu and so forth saying that this must not be allowed to happen. So let's just check that, that we're right about that. But look, I think as far as, uh, you know, relaxation of ideological constraints on other fronts, I don't think anything has actually happened yet. But mm-hmm. I, I think you're right in the sense that people are beginning to have to think the unthinkable in a number of different directions. And uh, that, you know, I don't think South Africans are different from anybody else when push comes to shove. That. No matter how much you shout and yell and say, I won't, I won't, I won't. If in the end you find yourself in a very tight spot and there's only one way out, are you going to take it? Well, of course you do. Uh, but the problem is that the, world, the, the political resistances uh, are enormous and particularly for Cosatu and the SACP, <clears throat> down to the EFF, uh, the, they, with some reason, uh, are not at all sure that they would survive an IMF bailout, that uh, the, the liberalization of the labor laws, which would undoubtedly be one of the conditions, might very well uh, put paid to them. So they would be bound to fight. It would be a survival question for them.
0: Bill, we're going to take a very quick ad break. Um, We're going to have you on again afterwards for just about 10 minutes as we perhaps look at the ramifications, the political ramifications Mm. as you begin to allude to them for the ANC in the upcoming election. So we're going to take a quick ad break, and we'll see you after this. IFM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to the IRR show. We're in conversation with R.W. Johnson. Um, uh, uh, excuse me, Bill, uh, before the break, we we were beginning to sort of go into the political ramifications, um, mostly for political parties, which have have sort of yoked themselves to a hard left or a leftist, um, type ideology, but just generally speaking, let's maybe take a a, a step back and look at the ANC, uh. It would seem, it would seem, but the evidence does i shown, sorry, that the ANC's electoral, um, majority has begun to sort of, you know, diminish and, and wane after each election. Given what we've gone through right now with the COVID-19 and generally other factors that are playing, are coming into play rather, what are the prospects for the ANC, even with, I suppose, uh, the the bits of of lingering ramaphoria, if they even are, uh, if that political capital even still does exist. What are the prospects for the ANC?
2: Well, look, it's hard at the moment to say anything very definite about either that or the prospects for the DA, uh, because everything is very much uh, up in the air, and we don't know mm. how it's going to come out. One thing I would say is that you know when I was polling um, in the run up to the last election. Uh, we found that um, there were uh, 11% of the ANC electorate said th- that they uh, would not have voted for the party because of corruption and you know all the things that they they knew were wrong, but they had confidence in Ramaphosa. That is to say that it looks as if Ramaphosa. Uh, was responsible for about a, an extra 11%. Now, without that 11, they would have been under 50. So, mm-hmm. certainly, his standing is very important to the party now, and they are more dependent on that, uh, than they have been on. I don't think that Mbeki's personal standing was important, or, or, or Zuma's in that sense. Uh, I don't even know about Mandela's. But, certainly now, there was some reliance on him personally. So, I think, that I think his position is actually far stronger than he seems to realize, and that one of the things which he probably should have done long ago is to go on TV and establish a direct relationship with the electorate uh, in the way that Franklin Roosevelt did with his fireside chats and so on, because I think he does have an appeal way beyond the ANC, and that um, that is a, is a major political asset. But look, we don't really know, I think the the point really is that if the ANC is forced towards asking for a bailout from the IMF, uh, this will undoubtedly split the ANC and that will happen because Mm -hmm. I don't think Kasatu and uh, SACP can possibly go along with that, some other sections of the left of the ANC may, may join them and I'm sure the EFF would be on that side too. And uh, you know, but if, if political necessity requires it to happen, then you would get a sort of Ramaphosa block in favour, presumably supported by the DA, uh, and you know that would then change the whole political landscape. So mm-hmm. that's what's at stake in, in politically in, in the current economic uh, crisis.
1: Mm. Um, just from a small point of view in in terms of the immediate crisis and not so much the broader one but couldn't Ramaphosa have really bolstered his fortunes by taking the 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 idiotic the more idiotic uh, prescriptions in in the covid crisis such as the sorry such as the transporting of uh, of goods and and uh, the alcohol and the and the eating of hot food if he'd sort of stepped up and Taken the issue from his ministers, and said, and got, and and and, and certainly said, this we we recognise this can't be done. We are we are withdrawing on these, etc. etc. Could he not have done that? Is he not, you know, if he, if he is that popular?
2: Well, he could have certainly, and I think he would have been well advised to do so. But mm. as you know, uh, we've seen it over and over again that he is simply completely unwilling to do that sort of thing. That it's not the way that people have behaved uh, to date and that he wants to observe all the sort of ANC conventions and so forth. So he won't do that sort of thing. And um, he behaves as if he's in a very weak situation. But, uh, you know, I think it is ridiculous and that he should have put his foot down on, on quite a few of these issues.
1: Do 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 people perhaps um, not give enough um, credit to the to the extent to which uh, Ramaphosa really is a a socialist, and that's the only and the only time he's ever publicly expressed his exact political leanings have been in talks in which he's mentioned socialism, not being a big businessman or pro capitalist or admiring the the uh, the business sector. Um, he he doesn't seem he, if you look carefully he's not ever said that he is a capitalist or remotely anything like that
2: no no uh, look i think that he would uh simply you know he tends to just utter whatever the homilies offered by the anc are and it's, it's very difficult to know what his own personal private beliefs are on these issues really but look i think that he has adopted a more pragmatic approach in the sense that because he is asking um The ANC, I mean, he's essentially stopped mentioning the NDR. We don't Mm -hmm. get any more mention of radical economic transformation. I think that the reason that he then makes such a point about NHI is that he's trying to placate the left a bit, because if he's giving up on these other issues, which are important to them, then he has to wave the flag yeah. in some other area. I think it's as pragmatic as that.
1: hmm Sufi, okay. anything from your oh, side?
0: Sorry, um, unless you're giving that a little bit of thought. But perhaps as my final question, Bill, in the sort of last three minutes that we have, um, is to then sort of, uh, I'm going to ask you to to play the uh, fortune teller, unfortunately, but um, in terms of the political prospects of other uh, parties, I mean, what we've seen during this uh, crisis period, if I can call it that, of, of, of COVID, is... How other political parties have just been blown out of the water in terms of just their relevance. I mean, the DA perhaps is, is the, uh, has tried the best, um, just to stay in the, uh, should I call it in the fight, um, of relevance, um, with its, you know, counter proposals and the like. And, you know, kudos to them for trying to do that. Um, but if I was an ordinary voter, I, I would be asking the questions of, you know, where are the EFF, for example? Where is the ACDP? Um, how do you think this will play out in perhaps the upcoming elections?
2: No, I think that's right. And it's true internationally as well. I mean, you can see how Biden uh, is finding it very difficult to get into the public sphere at the moment uh, because he is, uh, you know, unable to hold large rallies or even big public press conferences. And uh, you find the same in Britain with the with Labour Party. You know that all the action at the moment is in the hands of governments and they hold these dramatic press conferences saying this is what's happening, this is what we're doing and so forth and uh, you know the new Labour leader Starmer in Britain, the only way he's managed to get into the act is by offering his full support to the government is there anything I can do to help? <laughs> uh, and, well, you know, fine and good for him but yeah. uh, I think that it's very, very difficult for any party outside government at the moment, and of course, in the case of the DA, they haven't elected their new leader yet. Everything is a bit all over the place. The sort of backwash from having to get rid of the previous leader is still there. Uh, so, they're, they're, and the, the problems which led to that to them getting rid of that leader too—you uh, know, the decline in the African speaking support and so on—so they they're in a uh, are, they're not on they're not very well balanced as a party, and they've got to recover from a very difficult situation. So the EFF, I think, also have found that, you know, their brand of economic populism really doesn't go anywhere in this situation, they've got nothing to offer. But I think that's just generally the situation of opposition politicians everywhere at the moment. Mm. Bill,
0: thank you very much. Um, and unfortunately our time has run out. That was Mr. R. W. Johnson, renowned historian and political analyst, who joined us today as we looked at the conversation around some of the political ramifications of the, not only the COVID period, but our politics generally. A big thank you to, to you, Bill, Hello. for having joined us.
2: Thanks, Bill.
0: Thank okay, thanks, uh, Bye. And we'll see you, or we'll, Catch up with you, dear listener, after the short break as we look at what to look out for in the new news week to come. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to the IRR show. In our last sort of eight, uh, eight to nine minutes or so um, of the show, we were in conversation with R.W. Johnson, renowned historian and uh, political analyst. As we looked at the- the broad spectrum of our politics in the country, um, you know, uh, both under this current COVID-19 uh, um, uh, period, if I can call it that, and, of course, just generally, as we look forward, you know, where, as the last question I posed, where are the other political parties? Um, mm-hmm. They seem to be being blown out of the water. Sorry, your, your impressions of that it, conversation?
1: It, yeah, um, my, I just wanted to say something about the EFF. Um, my feeling is not just that it's not sort of uh, making much of an impression. It seems to completely oper- operating in a zeitgeist that it doesn't share um, with its supporters. It's calling for a very hard lockdown when I would imagine many of the uh, EFF supporters are... You know, getting a bit desperate, uh, both financially and uh, nutritionally, shall we say. So, it, 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 unless I'm wrong, it seems to be a sort of shooting in the foot um, type scenario with the EFF. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm quite, uh, I'm, I'm quite intrigued though that uh, that the, the that um, Bill sees very much the same sort of potential for a split, but quite when and where we don't exactly know in the ANC.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I found it very interesting to see, and again, it's all anecdotal insofar as social media, but I've seen on social media how even some of the staunchest supporters of not only the EFF, but other political parties too, have in, been quite vocal in their criticism of their leadership. You know, there, there is a growing sense and awareness, if I can call it that, yeah. of just perhaps how aloof our political elites are, to mm. the people on the ground. It's played out in all sorts of ways, from people criticizing, for example, the dismissal of how, um, you know, uh, authoritarian, tough, and really humiliating the conduct, for example, of our security forces has been mm-hmm. on mostly poor and, you know, I must, it must be said, black communities in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, Right down to even, um, you know, a Julius Malema who, uh, for instance, prior to this was saying, was like, oh, we should open up all the borders and, you know, there shouldn't mm. be any control over who comes. And even as people were saying, look, this is clearly a virus that's being mm. spread by the ease of tra- tra- travel. And again, I'm, I'm not saying, the ease of travel is a bad thing or a problematic thing, but, you know, there was and there are obviously calls for that to be looked into as, as a mitigating factor when you do have a crisis like COVID. Um, hmm. So there is, I think, a, a, a a realization of the appearances versus reality of who political elites are versus who ordinary South Africans and yeah. what their sentiments may be. But um, as my producer says, let, let we should wrap up. Um, sorry, the, maybe the one thing you'll be looking towards in the news weekend.
1: I think the the crucial issue is whether is that is the government coming up with a plan. Um, for a, a post hard lockdown, um, it, it, it's getting a bit late in the day for it and it's going to be crucial. And of course, watching the various uh, economic and financial disasters, perhaps particularly some of the financial disasters such as the um, such as the situation of the land bank. So I think we're going to start looking
0: more and more at that even. Absolutely. And on that particular topic on Wednesday at 1pm, just watch out for the Big Daddy Liberty show on my social media platforms. We're going to be looking exactly that with economist Russell Lamberti and Mbiake Gamini from the Free Market Foundation. And of course, the BDL show on High FM on Friday at 9am. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the IRR show. You can find us, remember, on the Daily Friend website, dailyfriend.co.za. for all the news analysis and opinion. My name is Big Daddy Liberty. And we've been with Sara Khan, and we'll see you guys next week, Tuesday.